Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. My mom loves and loved Tony. My mom heard Tony on Fresh Air years before I met him and heard the whole story about his dad and how his dad was a drug dealer. And she called me while I was living in London and she said, I have the perfect guy for you. How many times has your mother said, I've got the perfect guy for you? My mom once told me she thought that I was going to marry John Hamm, which um, I'm still holding on to there. But Katie Turr's mom wasn't entirely wrong. She just didn't know it at the time. Katie, the host of Katie Turr Reports on MSNBC, had a fairly unorthodox upbringing. Her parents were helicopter journalists in the 1980s in Los Angeles, and she was often brought along on the wild ride. So when her mom heard this guy on a podcast telling the story of his own crazy childhood with his drug-smuggling father, Katie's mom thought, Wow, this man with a crazy family is perfect for my daughter. And then Katie promptly forgot about this conversation, until she met Tony years later. When I told her I started dating him, she's like, oh my God, it's the guy that I told you to date. I'm Joe Piazza, and this is Committed. Katie and Tony ultimately met at work. Katie was covering the Trump campaign for NBC and MSNBC. This weekend I'll be with Clint Eastwood in California, tremendous group of people. I'm going to Arizona this weekend. I'll be all over the place. You were one of the only candidates who didn't campaign during the 4th of July. Pretty much all of them were up in New Hampshire, and you were not there. You've had uh, no campaign events really this week, no campaign events planned uh, for next week that we know of so far. You're not campaigning that much. How can anybody take you seriously if you're not out there showing your face? Because I'm doing television with you, and I am up there actually a lot, and I watched them up there uh, walking the streets, and it didn't mean anything, and I was actually getting more news coverage than anybody else by far because I'm the one that brought up the whole situation. And Tony was working at the network as a writer after spending years working for Newsweek. Tony still considered himself a writer with a capital W, a very serious writer, even though he was just starting to dabble in television. So I was sitting in the makeup room and I had like half of my face done. My hair was in curlers and I'm just obsessively scrolling through my phone because this is the Trump era and you have to pay attention. And I looked up at the television and there on screen, on mute, was I think the most handsome man I've ever seen in my entire life. He had this thick brown hair and he had a nice square jaw and he wore glasses and a tweed blazer. He looked very writerly like Indiana Jones. And I yelled in the middle of the makeup room, who the fuck is that? Makeup girls, women were, they all looked up and they said, oh, that's Tony. We all have a crush on Tony. And I said, 
does he work here? How have I never seen him before? How don't how do I not know him? And they said, yeah, he does this or that and blah, blah, blah. And in a couple minutes later, walks well, Tony okay. DeCopel. But I, before the couple minutes later, I think necessary context is I had the glasses on and the blazer on because I was at that time aggressively identifying as a writer with a capital W who was going to be very serious and professorial and only was doing TV because the print writing world was collapsing all around me and I still needed to make money. And so I was like, okay, I'll try it. This so is how he tells it. So it's important to know that the fact that the TV was on mute is really key to us meeting because she liked what she saw. She would not have liked what she was hearing because I was true. terrible, terrible, terrible at TV. And I knew I was terrible. So when I walked off set after that appearance and into the makeup room, I walked in as I do all the time in those days, which is dejected and disappointed in my own performance. I didn't care. I, I just was like... I, w I was shocked into silence and I saw him standing next to me and I couldn't even say anything. I was just like <laughs> giggling. And one of the stylists said, Tony, have you met Katie? And he looked over at me and he said something like, oh, you covered Trump. Crazy interview. And I just remember being completely like running from the makeup room to my friend Brad, who worked at Nightly News at the time and saying, who is Tony DeCopel? Let's Google him right now. <laughs> And, and I walked out of there, still in my own head, still thinking about how terrible my appearance was on TV, how desperately I needed to make TV work, how much I hated the fact that I had to make TV work because I still was so in love with writing. And then it wasn't until like 11 p.m., 11.30, maybe even midnight that night that I had a drink by myself at home. And I thought, huh, that girl in the makeup room why did they introduce me? They've never introduced me to anybody. There might be something there. So then I Googled her. <laughs> and then I think I followed you. I didn't You followed me on Twitter you. at like yeah. midnight and I thought, oh, it's on. I keep following me on Twitter, yeah. but I was not, I was gonna play a game. You know, I wasn't gonna follow him back immediately. I was gonna let it simmer for a minute. And then I would follow him back and then he would reach out. And so eventually I followed him back. I think it was maybe the next day. I didn't wait that long. And I thought he would DM me. He would slide into my DMs, and he never did. Yeah, I, you know, you I was not. You never did. Yeah, so I never why, did. Why were you following if you were never going to slide into the DMs? What was the uh, point of the follow? I didn't know what I was doing. All right, what you need to know here is that at this time, Tony felt like a real sad sack. He was a divorced dad living in a sad sack studio apartment. He was a writer who was watching the world of print collapse around him, and he had no idea what he was going to do next. He'd also just read this guest essay in the New York Times about a divorced dad who thought he was never, ever going to date again. And I was like, yes, this is me. I'm forlorn. I'm on a canoe of solitude for the next 15, 20 years. And then, because then, I had younger kids at the time, I was divorced. And it was like, this is my lot. I won't be dating anytime soon. Anyway, so we see each other in the hallway a couple of days later, and he smiles at me in this organic way, and I smile at him in this immediately organic way. And there was like, there was just like, there was a spark there. Something good must have happened, like, and this is just my good luck, like something good must have happened to me in the immediate moments before seeing her that made my confidence go up. Because then when I saw her, I was like, hey, hey, <laughs> ho, how's it going? <laughs> but still, he didn't reach out. So I being the impatient person I am, said, fuck it, I'm going to email him. And I remember I, that. I, I want to linger on this moment because there was a there's a short hallway by the makeup room. There's a short a hallway on the makeup room. And I and then and I came around a corner and she came around the corner. So there was no time to like see each other in the distance, get all awkward and yeah. nervous and pretend to check your phone or look away. We just locked eyes. And I remember it in slow motion. We Me just too. It was like. I remember the feeling. It was immediate. It was just like, it was, it was like, I knew him already, even though I didn't know you at all. It was, there was a spark. It was a spark. It was chemistry. It was amazing. So Katie spends a long time crafting an email 
that she thought was very clever and very witty, inviting Tony out to drink any and all manner of beverages. Gentleman's choice. A coffee, a daiquiri, a Fanta. Do you like me? Check yes or no. All right. And, then, and I wisely chose daiquiri. I was actually in the middle of a conference call for Trump campaign coverage. It was, like, it was one earbud in my ear, and I was like also on this date with this hot guy. And then we, we got to the point in the conversation where we couldn't continue with small talk, and like in a normal relationship, you would shift into where you're from, what do your parents do? And because I had Googled her, and I presume she had also Googled me, I just cut to what I would have preferred her to do, which is like, look, we have crazy parents, right? This right here was so wildly refreshing for Katie to hear and for Tony to say out loud. Any of you with crazy parents, myself included, and I am married to a man with not crazy parents, and he still doesn't totally get me, but any of you who do have crazy parents will understand just how much easier it is to be with someone who also has a wacky family. As I mentioned earlier, Katie's parents were the first helicopter news pilots in Los Angeles, and they covered some completely crazy stuff from the O.J. Simpson chase to the L.A. riots, often with Katie along for the ride. Her dad was brilliant and volatile, but often abusive. And Katie writes about this so beautifully in her book, Rough Draft. Grab the book to read the whole story. And Tony, he understood having that kind of childhood because his own dad was a multinational drug smuggler who used his drug money to fund Tony's fancy education and relatively privileged childhood. I would say, just as I hear you have a crazy father yeah, too, like, and I said, yeah, and that was yeah. the end of it. That yeah, was the end so, of it, and we didn't talk about it again, and it was like, I, for me, it felt like a relief not having to like explain my whole childhood. Yeah. And I think you felt the same. Because I was so tired of telling people who don't have a crazy childhood, like the beats of my childhood and the predictable reactions of like, ooh, oh, wow. And then ooh. like going back to the, you know, the parents for that boyfriend or girlfriend yeah. for you and having to explain to the, the parents that you're not used to this Thanksgiving because nobody's throwing biscuits at each other and storming out and saying you're never coming back. So, <laughs> so the whole background conversation, we just sort of put in a box and we slid it to the side, and then what did we talk about after that? I don't even know. I don't know. I think we got kind of tipsy, and then you ran off. We got we got tipsy, and then I was like looking at the clock, and I had to go relieve the babysitter who had my older kids. And so Tony just put it out there. He just put it right out there on the table over daiquiris on their first date. But Tony didn't want to tell Katie the reason he was leaving. To me, that was the absolute kryptonite for the relationship. So I was like, I can't tell her I've already got. I, the way I saw it was like, everyone wants their relationship to be a blank sheet of paper. And then you write the future together on your blank sheet of paper. But my sheet of paper already had scribbles on it. <laughs> there were straight pen marks and there was writing on it. And I didn't want to tell her that yet, that she wasn't getting a clean piece of paper. Spoiler alert, I knew. She knew because I she Googled him. She, but there's not a lot on the internet about it. I mean, you had pictures of like you, handmade cards you know. to dad on your desk, and well, it says you live. Your book said you live with your family in in Brooklyn. I mean, I think family implies children. Fine, but you. I think the giveaway unless was unless you I, live with your parents and extended, you know, aunts and uncles, which, which would have been other baggage. Yes. Right. Well, which probably would have been better, actually. No, it would have been, been no, way worse. Oh, that's, crazy. Better. that's so much worse. Then I'm ready to launch. Then I'm no, like, no, you're not. No, you failed to launch. launch. Like the Matthew McConaughey no. movie. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. No, that's 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 not the guy you you want to go on another date with. But Katie, so you, Katie, you didn't say anything. You're just you let him go relieve the babysitter and pretended you didn't know. I was like, see you later, bye. Yeah. And waited for him to tell you. So we went on a second date, and the second date went really well. Although I thought it was kind of odd because it was quiet the whole time. And we met at 8 o'clock, and I thought, okay, we'll go get dinner. I'm starving. And I and he mentioned nothing about dinner. So when we saw each other, I said, can we get some food? I'm, like, really hungry. Also, it was the heat of summer, and she wore awesome white jeans and a white top. And I had no, even if I knew anything about style, I had no money to make style happen. And so I had like a corduroy shirt true. on. You looked very handsome, although in a I, I definitely had, I definitely had fall clothes on. He had the corduroy suit on. Yeah, I had like a <laughs> I think a corduroy suit. 
It was pretty brutal. Anyway, we went to get dinner and I was like, you know, I was itching for a steak and he ordered like rice and beans. Like I have a side of rice and beans and spinach. And I remember thinking, is he a manorexic? Like, why yeah. is he not eating? Later, I found out it's because you had no money. I had no money. So I was making I was making a meal out of the sides. I was like, mm, five plus seven plus eight. That's but not it was that still much. a very good second date. And he we kissed and it was very romantic. And he told me his favorite song was Travis Spritz. Great day to be alive. And I thought, OK, well, that's questionable, but I still like you. And then I had to go, the older kids were going, they go to school overseas. And they, so as we were leaving, going walking back, I was living in a hotel at this time. And he walked me back to the hotel and he said, listen, I've got to tell you something. I'm about to go. I've the got kids these up. kids. Yeah. And I said, I, I know, I Googled you. And he said, but I, but they're moving to Israel. And I said, oh, that I did not know. And it explained like this kind of hangdog look that he, that he had, this sad look in his eyes. And suddenly it all felt very obvious. And then uh, I got to Israel, and because I'm an immature person, I found a street sign on like a walk that I was taking through the neighborhood when the kids were in actual school. And the street sign said P-I-N-E-S-S. <laughs> locally, it's pronounced Penis Street. Mm-hmm. And he thought, you know what, it's I'm going to send this picture to this girl that I've been on two dates with. Like, so that's I, right. I sent it to and her. And I said, we've been on two dates and you're already sending me dick pics. What's wrong with you? <laughs> I, I was like, yes, this, she's awesome. This is great. I love her. I would have really appreciated that kind of dick pic. Would have. Would have. I would have fallen in love right there, too. You did have a deal breaker for him. You, you told, and when did you tell him? Right? Oh, my Four God. Day. Okay. I think it was just, this was a, uh, a little bit too much sake. We're sitting in a, in a sushi restaurant. In by NYU, it's on Ninth Street. And this was this was the date that if if in our trajectory, if I think we both kind of sense it, like if we were gonna do it, this was gonna be the night we were gonna do like, it. Do it, yeah. Like, it, like it? this is gonna be like a this because potentially I think that there was already pretty a pretty heavy makeout in the hotel room before we went to dinner. Yeah, but we didn't do it. We anything. didn't do it. We didn't. We didn't do it. Yeah, but it, there was a lot of anticipation. A lot of in excitement. There. A lot of excitement in the air. A lot of electricity in the air. So we're sitting at dinner. I've had maybe. Slightly too much sake, just enough to make me loosen a bit unguarded. And I think I stupidly blundered into it and was like, I thought it was going to be a deal breaker when I had two kids, but it looks like we're going to have sex tonight. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well, you know, that's not a deal breaker. And your your dumbass was like, well, what is a deal breaker? What is a deal breaker? (laughs) And then she lays it on the table. And I said, uh, no more kids. If you don't want any more kids. And and and. I, I took a breath, so I was like, this is a lot to put on someone on the fourth. This is, I would never do this on the fourth date. And, like, I'm, how old was I? 32, I guess? 30, I don't, I don't remember. I was 31 or 32. I was starting to think about kids, you know? I was right, to, yeah, yeah. As a woman in her 30s does. Yes, I think you should lay that out on the table. I didn't know what the rules of engagement were yet for a woman dating in her 30s. And I just kind of blurted it out, and I said, you don't want more kids. And his face went ghostly white because he had two kids. And he was like, I don't know if I want more kids. And I remember thinking, wow, like this is over before it started. Yeah. And I said, I said, that's fine. You know, like I we're not having sex tonight. I, I think I said we're not having sex tonight. And yeah. The second I said we're not having sex tonight, I was like, we're definitely going to have sex tonight. We're definitely going to have sex tonight. <laughs> and we yeah. definitely had sex that night. Did we? Yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah, definitely the first time. Yeah. It was electric because it felt so wrong. It, like it was going, yeah, the relationship was going nowhere. So it was just fun sex. We had more sex and more sex. And then yeah. you were like, wait, no, maybe I'll have some more kids. Yeah. But then I did have a wobble. I did have a wobble. You did have a wobble. Yeah. Tony did have a wobble. He wobbled. He got nervous. At this point, his kids were four and six, which is still very young. And all he wanted to do was be a great dad to them. And so he told Katie that couldn't do it. He didn't think that he had the bandwidth to have any more kids. Like I couldn't contemplate anything more until I knew that they, their bond with me was intact and that I was doing right by them and that that felt stable and secure. Tony was also really nervous and understandably so about supporting a family. I was doing a lot of stuff for MSNBC. I was traveling on the road and, and the work was getting some attention. But no one was making me job offers. My future was not at all secure. And so I told her, like, 
this is a shitty situation. And in fact, I think you were fired at that point from technically you were technically fired from MSNBC. Yeah, they were like they were like your position doesn't exist as a writer anymore, but but keep going around on the campaign he got, trail. You got a literal pink slip in December and somehow managed to talk your way out of not well getting because like the next so I I was at the time I was part of the enterprise unit and then. They eliminated that and they put me in the investigative unit and then they and then, and then they eliminated yeah. a job there and I was like, Do you know I have other no, jobs yeah. here? <laughs> yeah. And they were like, No, we'll get back to you. And they were like, All right, we'll keep you on. You do go do that assignment and we'll let you know. So and then like they never let me know. A, he was living on a wire. Like at any this whole time. at any time. Like I was I was a guy in a cartoon running and like the 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 bridge was collapsing behind me. I was in danger and nothing had been sorted out so i felt like i cannot possibly continue in good faith with you because i don't know if i'm going to be able to have more kids we will get to all of this after a quick break hey guys joe here this episode of committed is brought to you by my brand new novel the sicilian inheritance this is honestly the best book that i've ever written i love it so much the Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. Yeah. So we were at the NRA convention. Yes, they were both covering the NRA convention when Tony told Katie that he didn't think he wanted any more kids. Yeah, and so he said it in the middle of the night and we were we were sleeping in this hotel which had only provided us two twin beds and I promptly got out of the twin bed that we had been sharing because we were crazy in love and, you know, can't sleep apart from each other at all. And I slept in the other twin bed and I said, I guess it's over. And we woke up the next morning and I think both of us were still in a bit of shock because, like, there was no going forward from this. And I went to go do my assignment that day and he went to go do his assignment that day. I remember calling my mom in the middle of it and saying, this is what happened with Tony. And my mom loves and loved Tony. And I said that he said he didn't want to have kids. And she was like, well, you got to cut him loose. It's the end of that. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, I get a text message from you saying, can we talk? And I went to meet him and he's sitting by a grenade launcher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you really love those metaphors, Tony. <laughs> and are we, like, really? <laughs> are we going to get into the foxhole together? And so we're sitting by this grenade launcher and I sit down with him and, and he says, I think I've made a big mistake. You decided to get into the foxhole with me and you were wondering if I was still willing to be in it with you. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I think you did make a mistake. And we made up and I told you my mom told me to cut you loose and you didn't believe me. <laughs> and I said she likes grandkids more than she likes the idea of you. And then some Boy Scouts went to go test out a flamethrower. And that was, that was, that was it. That's it. That's it. I actually like that story of the grenade launcher better, even better than your proposal story, which is very sweet. But I like, I like, I like that, that one. That one better. It's, it's like too good to be true. Like, I know it really is. Picks up and then gets back together at the NRA convention. It's very, it's very surreal. That convention is incredibly surreal. It's really, it's the best thing to ever happen at an NRA convention. And after that, it was on. Katie ended up moving into Tony's roach-infested Brooklyn studio apartment. Yeah, I, I it was very small. It was like the divorce dad special in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Say, like, hold like, on, I got to get the goats out of here. And I laughed because I knew he meant cockroaches, but he was unwilling to say cockroaches. So I, because they would really crawl around. They were big, fat cockroaches. And I thought so I'd go in and stamp my feet and they'd run away. And it was such a small place that... They would pile pans up under underneath the stove where the cockroaches would come out. So they would be blocked. They were not. They, yeah, but they got around. It was, they got around. And it was also so small that the bathroom had like the kind of sink you see on like a, like a, like a boat, like a sailboat sink. Little corner, 
And then there was only one room and then half a wall where the bed was. And I remember when my older son's friend came over after soccer, he came into the house and he was like, where's the rest of it? Where's the, where's the other stuff? Um, it was bad. It, it was, was just bad. small. It was small. It was very small. It was charming, though, and I didn't need anything more. I don't know. I, I didn't care. I just wanted to be next to you. Oh. It's true. They eventually found another bigger, less roachy apartment once Tony got a steady job at CBS. And Tony getting this job was probably mostly due to some really good advice that Katie gave him involving a tight black t-shirt and push-ups. At the time, I would look up at ABC, and every time they had a, a, a correspondent out, it was like a handsome guy in a tight black T-shirt who looks like they who looked like they had just done push-ups. I was I was pretty dejected. I I, I was wearing <laughs> thick chunky glasses every day, and like the corduroy coat that we went on our date with, and and I was trying to look writerly, and it wasn't working at all. And I was getting on TV regularly, but no one was paying attention. No one wanted. You know, make it official with me and give me a contract or a real paycheck. And so her advice was no glasses, push your hair up real high, throw the coat into your bag, put on a black t shirt, and do 100 push ups. And she said this because I was at the border in Arizona doing a primary story ahead this of the vote there. And I, I was half joking with him, not really being too You were serious. not joking. The story is like, it's, it's, it's funny, but it's also kind of horrible. It says, it, well, so what I it's always It's also say, kind of the plot of an 80s and 90s romantic comedy where you take <laughs> off the girl's glasses and she goes from geek to chic. Like, she's all that. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, Tony does it. He did the push-ups. He put on the tight black t-shirt. He zhuzhed up his hair. And just a reminder, and you can Google this to fact check me, Tony is pretty hot. Yeah. He was a smoking hot single dad. So. There he is, wearing his tight black t-shirt. And the very next day, ABC News called with a real job offer. I'm sure I'm still terrible as a TV person, but I look good. And maybe ABC News was always going to call. Maybe their intention <laughs> maybe was they wouldn't. that they noticed the guy with the corduroy coat on and the thick glasses. And they were like, he's our guy. I don't know. But the timing was that I did that appearance in that look at her recommendation, and they called that week. And maybe it wasn't the shirt, but it probably was. And he was able to parlay that offer from ABC into another offer from NBC. And then you can take those two and your stock is high and, and you know, play the mark a little bit. And I went to CBS and I was like, this is where I want to be. What do you think? I thought that you and your personality and the what you like, your style would match more at CBS CBS has 60 Minutes on Sunday morning. And if you were able to get onto one of those shows, you would be golden. And look what happened. You got onto Sunday morning yeah. and you were golden. It worked out very well. So, I mean, lessons here are, even if you're not really sure, if you're sure about the person, but not sure about the future kids, just go for it. That's the... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. And Unless you really don't want to. Yeah, yeah. It. Then you yeah. probably shouldn't go for it. Well, but I mean, if you're really, really into the person, you can't imagine being happy without this person, then you're going to want all that they want, I think. I guess. I don't know. Maybe. The other thing is that that money is very important when you choose a job, but maybe not as much as path and trajectory and fit. Like, if you get there, you're good there. Yeah. So Tony gets the job. They get out of the cockroach-infested studio, and then they decide to elope. We will get to all of this after a quick break. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt 
to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter over the influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. We decided we want to get married. And after the Trump campaign, and I was writing a book, I was like, I don't have any energy or desire to plan a wedding. Don't want to do it. Don't want to think about who's going to sit where. Don't want to think about who I have to invite and who I want to invite. Particulars of, of who doesn't like who and all the drama that all goes. All the bullshit. So much bullshit. Yes. All the bullshit that goes to the wedding. And I looked at you one night and I said, can we please just elope? Can we please just elope? And you said, yes, that sounds great. And so I dream, dream for me. I googled best resort in America because I thought I'm not spending money on a wedding. I can spend a little bit of money on on the nicest resort in America. And what we found was a place in Utah, northern end of the of the Grand Canyon. And it was a place that very fancy. When you called to book a reservation, they would say, they ask you, you're flying private, private." and we're like, like, no, we're flying Delta. Can we send? Can we send you a car? Like, no, we got a Chevy Malibu. Like, we're good. Yeah, I got like I got I got a lot of Avis points from the campaign trail, yeah, exactly. so I'm gonna use that. <laughs> so we get there and we we stay in this like this this hotel. I spent more money on this hotel than I spent on anything in my life. They used this very fancy hotel as a home base to hike up to an ancient rock formation, where the manager of the hotel acted as an officiant to marry them. Um. And. He kept calling Tony Tom. <laughs> he kept, yeah, like the, the paper was blowing in the wind, and I guess I wrote my name too fast, and so he kept, you know, thinking the NY was an M, and so he kept Tom. Katie, me. do you take Tom? I was like, no, I take Tony. <laughs> but it was nice. We wrote our own vows, and we. Mine were shitty, and I'm gonna. And we said them to each other, and we. Mine got were bit, totally shitty. We I got a bit teary. I've, I, we got teary for because I love you, and it was. Out. It was perfect. But I, I, for a person who's made his living with words, have utterly failed this woman uh, at key moments with toasts, vows, public declarations. I don't know, you did a really nice, a really nice intro at the book party. I nailed. That was really book. nice. That was really good. Yeah. I did that very well. I did. My that vows well. were good. As well. Yours were great. Yours were great. But like, I, I, I'm so glad that I'm going to be able to make it up to you at our tenth wedding anniversary. He said something once about how he likes. I'm just saying I'm marred provocatively, which I thought was a bit of an insult at the time. I was like, what do you mean I'm marred provocatively? Because I have like acne scarring on my face. He's like, I just love looking at your face. It's like, it's just so interesting and so beautiful. And I said, yeah, but my acne scarring. And he said, no, you're marred provocatively or provocatively marred. And I remember thinking like, that's a horrible thing to say. But <laughs> it's so writerly. But I used it in our vows. I forgot how I used it. I don't it. remember. You're going to get a better vows from me at our 10th we're gonna read we're gonna re-up we're Are gonna we re-up gonna yes we're gonna re-up we're gonna Are we get gonna a... be able to afford almond gary at no this point? No, no we're not we're no, 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 no one is affording almond gary. no one no one that's a one-time deal we're and we're gonna i'm gonna get another shot of this i'm gonna repropose and i'm gonna do the vows again and they're gonna be perfect i thought it me. was perfect the first time all the way around you no, hold yourself to too high of a standard i thought they were all great okay good good never mind never mind then I love what you talk about in the book about the struggle to choose life over your career. Do you think being with Tony helped you figure out how to choose your life over your career? Yeah, I do think so. I think that there was something about him that felt so right that the decision was an easy one. I mean, I wasn't between the options of going to the White House and covering Trump or staying in New York and being married to this guy. Like, I obviously I would choose this. I mean, I did have some like wonders. Did, should I have done, tried to do both? You know, what could I have commuted? But no, I mean, I wanted, I spent my whole life chasing after this career and dropping everything for this career and moving across the world for this career or spending, you know, just dropping everything and going somewhere for seven weeks or for 510 days, you know, just being completely subservient to it, surrendering to it. And at, whatever age I was, 33, I can't remember anything anymore. You have kids and your brain does so much. 33, I thought, if I keep doing this, if I say no to this thing that I have here, 
I don't know when I'm going to get a better chance. And when I look at the, my future, I want a family more than I want this career. I'd love to have both. I'm going to choose one or the other. I'm going to choose a family. I can figure something else out to do. That's so what I choose you. That's some, that's some pre-pandemic depth right there and reflection. Self-knowledge. Self-knowledge. Of course, at the time, I hoped that I would be able to do both. When Katie and Tony decided to start having kids of their own, they had a built-in deadline based on the 2020 presidential election. I want to do everything possible to make my career work in the, in the structure that I have built around it. I said, we can have a baby as long as we get pregnant by September 2018. If I'm pregnant by September 2018, I will be back at work if I have the baby in, in, in the spring, if I take five months off, or at the time I was thinking three months off, yeah, right. If I take five months off, six months off, whatever, I'll be back by the fall of 2019. And that's when things start getting geared up for the, for the campaign season. That's when the serious debates start. It's a few months before the primaries. Like, I can catch up at that point. I won't miss any of the important stuff. Yeah, it really weighed heavily on me. Looking back, I don't think it should have, but it did at the moment. And Tony, what were these deadlines like for you? Were you just you just like, yes, yes, we can do this? Or was that stressful? Also, trying to make a baby is stressful. It was definitely stressful. There was one night in it particular. It used to be a lot of fun, and then it was suddenly not any fun. It was like so fun, and it was like, this is the one thing you're not you're supposed like, to great, do. You know, we don't have to have any, any worries. We're trying to get pregnant. Do whatever you want. And then, but for some reason, as soon as that, as soon as all the restrictions come off you would think it'd become instantly fun but it, but like i don't know like the future is there in the room with you and so it's like it really affects oh, we had some bad 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 like we've had great interactions we've had some bad interactions you're, where like you're contemplating where like i i we got into big fights <laughs> really big fights like we're in highly over, in over highly, interactions that we had in highly delicate in highly delicate sexual situations there there have definitely been times where it's been like this feels like a job i i can't work like this and i like walk and I out was like a call job my, call my agent <laughs> a job i'll give you a fucking job yeah the job of not being answered to every time you speak to me but there's also I also, we did work for it. Uh, it was kind of job-like because there were certain windows, of course, everyone who's gone through this knows. He drove across the state once I, no, because I, the timing was right. I did, so I did an evening news appearance in some terrible weather storm. Deep in New Jersey. Deep in New Jersey. And then drove like many, many, many hours to be with her for like 30 minutes and then just get right back in the car and <laughs> drive back. for the morning show at the other end of New Jersey. Yeah. I remember that CBS Finance was like, you don't qualify for the SUV. And I was like, well, but I really needed it. <laughs> I, I, think, I think I had to eat that expense. There's nothing sexy about trying to make a baby. It's not fun. It is the worst. But Katie did get pregnant. I had a great pregnancy. I loved being pregnant so much with Teddy that I never wanted to stop being pregnant. I felt sexy. I felt bouncy. I was like... I could eat everything I thought. I like loved cheese puffs and I loved oranges and I just felt glowy and beautiful. My hair was thick and my skin got better. I thought it was the, the, the greatest experience of my life until I gave birth. <laughs> and like, I knew giving birth was gonna be hard, but I, I just assumed naively that my body knew what it was doing. Listen to your body, it knows what it's doing. And I thought there was very little chance that I'd have, I didn't even consider a C-section. I was like, there's no way I'm gonna have a C-section. My body works, it always has worked. Why would it not work here? I've been able to do whatever I need to do. And it went, I got induced because my doctor said, you know, there's a lot of literature that says if you get induced at 39 weeks, you don't get a C-section. So I said, okay, sure. And she induced me and it immediately feels, it felt like it went sour. Like I didn't feel well, I got a, I got a fever. I was shivering. The contractions were insane. Like there was no build. It went from zero to insane in a second. And I kept pushing back and saying, I don't want a C-section. They were like, Meh. you know, I had a couple of times where like 10 doctors would come in the room and you're like, this is not good. <laughs> there shouldn't be 10 of you in here. And finally, on I think the second time that all the doctors showed up in the room, they said, you don't really have a choice any longer. We got to get the baby out. And they started wheeling me in the OR, and I was 
hysterical. Like, his, hysterical. I couldn't... And I, I just... I completely fell apart. I'm this... I always prided myself on being such a strong person and willing to face anything. And this I suddenly could not face. And they said, your husband will be there in a second. You know, he's just going to change into his scrubs. And I remember feeling like I'm never going to see him again because this is all over. Like, I'm going to die. The baby's going to die. Like, this is... This is... This is the end. You've made a dumb mistake. You shouldn't have got induced. You put everything at risk. And they did the surgery. They got the baby out. I remember very... I remember the moments waiting for the cry. I think it was one second. It felt like, you know, a minute to me. But I felt very relieved once I heard it. And everything was fine. And then she, the doctors sewed me back up. I thought she sewed me back up. She stapled me back up. And it was, it was violent, you know, like I, I couldn't move. I could not move. I saw other moms who had given birth vaginally and who knows what they went through, but. Also terrible. I can tell you also terrible in a different way. I'm sure it was oh. terrible, but they were, they, you know, they had put on pants and they were walking. Oh yeah. We can, you can put on pants. You can put on pants. You can't poop, but you can put on pants. You can put on yes. pants. They, <laughs> they actually walked, they had their own, they, they walked on their own into the nursing room where you learn how to feed your baby. Yeah, which I also I, can't do. So. I, I was wheeled in, and I remember thinking, I look a lot worse than all these other moms. <laughs> what did they do to me? And then I got an infection. Kamala Harris called while I was looking at my infection. She was like, congratulations on the baby. It's Kamala! And I remember looking down at, like, the blood and the scar tissue, and I was just like, thanks. <laughs> and yet you still wanted to work. Because the Mueller report came out, you know, I'd covered the bar summary, which was totally misleading. And I had spent years covering the lead up to this thing. And I was on the campaign trail when he said, Russia, if you're listening, I pushed back on that question. I felt like this was a culmination to years of work that I had done. And I wanted to be a part of it. And so either he got exonerated completely or he was going to be indicted and in trouble. Something and was like, going to happen. This was a moment of happening. It was a moment of happening. Exactly. And I thought, you know, you're on mitol and Tylenol. Like, that's fine. Your brain's still functional. Yes, you're bleeding. But, like, I can put some bandages on that. Yes, you're bleeding from another area. I can wear a diaper. No big deal. We can go to the office. My mom can come with me. She can hold Teddy for an hour. And I can be on TV from two to three. I can do it. Like, this is totally possible for me to do. I was gung-ho. I thought, if they say yes, I'm, I'm going to get in a cab and I'm going to go. Texted my boss and I, I said, you know, I'm there. Like, just give me the word. I'm coming. Is it crazy? And he texted back almost immediately, which was unheard of for this boss at that time. And he said, you are crazy. You've been you had a baby four days ago. <laughs> Stay home. I couldn't even I couldn't even look at you. You, you were like, like you were an insane ridiculous. human being. But so we went to the my. Teddy's wellness appointment, got them all checked out. I had no idea what was going on. Tony was like Mr. Know-it-all in there. And I walk out, we go to get a coffee in the neighborhood. And I, and I, you know, I'm just settling into, you know, fine. Like, I, I'm not going to be at work. It's okay. I'm going to spend this time to bond. And a viewer comes up and looks at me and she doesn't, like, doesn't even take in the carriage, the baby carriage. She said, I've been wondering where you were. I said, oh, I just gave birth. You know? She said, God, it must be killing you to not be at work right now. <laughs> this is like, this is a woman who definitely had been like her prime was like 1989. <laughs> and she had been through the wars on like work and womanhood. And I was like, see, Tony, she understands me. Yeah, she, <laughs> she, she was me. she saw you. She definitely did. Oh, she wanted oh. you in there. She would have called. She would have called she for you. She would have demand. She would have driven you there yeah. to the newsroom. I don't think I could have done it. It might have been Murphy Brown. In Honestly, the flesh, I could have. I could have done it. It was an hour of television. It would have been triumphant. It would have set back all <laughs> progress for all the women at your company. It would have felt like you were doing something in defiance of what every, all this the standard of not having to go work that everyone else had had fought for. To uphold, I know, you know it's, true. I mean? it's true. Like, that's kind of the problem. Stuff like that yeah. it's like no one be a hero we're all trying to live lives here we're trying to live our lives well, that's here. what i say to the guys in my office because they offer the same amount of time off for women and men as long as you indicate that you're the primary caregiver and everyone's a freaking primary caregiver so i have colleagues like Eamon moedin who's an anchor as well take six months off 
it, it shows the other guys in the office that they can do it too. And I think more more people have been taking it, which is I think it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. That's what they should. There is a reason that Sweden is a much happier country than we are. Because all of the men fucking take paternity leave. And so my last question before my kids come in. COVID happens. You guys are all of a sudden, you're both on-air journalists filming from your basement. In this room right here, yeah. Working right next to each other. What the hell did COVID do to your relationship? It revealed a lot. It revealed a lot. He'd broadcast in the morning, and the very beginning, I'd get up and I'd help him do his makeup and like pretend I was his assistant. I'd give him scripts, and it was like cute and fun. And I'd like get on the phone to his his team, which had been spread out around the country, and like help make sure that everything was in order. That lasted like three days, and you realize that I I wasn't that helpful, and I realized that I liked sleeping a little longer. And then I would come in and in, in, in the afternoons, and he helped for a little while, and then the same thing. I realized I didn't really need his help; I could just do it on my own, and. Yet he still kept coming in here. He still kept like saying it's the only quiet place in the house, which is totally not true. And he would one hundred percent is true. The only quiet place in the house was where I was doing a national broadcast. There's no other desk in the How whole house. How is that possible? The only quiet place in the house was right next to me doing a national television broadcast. Because there are children right above us, and then there's our bedroom, and there's no desk in there. Anyway, so he'd come down and. He would sit here in, in in this chair, except this is a plastic chair, as is a wood chair. We've upgraded. And I would sit like three feet away from that with the television lights on. And I, it's the middle of COVID. We're talking about terrible things. Everyone's scared out of their mind. And during one interview, I'm talking to some woman. I think something terrible had happened to her family. And I'm, you know, feeling awful for her and trying to talk to her about it. And Tony just like, as if he is alone just farts as loud as you possibly could fart in my... into, into a plastic chair. It reverberates around the whole room and it smells terrible. And I'm on national television and I am sure that I could hear it obviously, but the viewers could hear it as well. And I am desperately trying to keep my face together, wondering should I interrupt and say, I'm so sorry for that, my husband's right here, or do I just ignore it and keep going? I decided to ignore it and keep going. Somehow I kept it together. Other times he would pass in front of the camera during commercial break, go to the bathroom, which is right here next to the camera with the door open. This happens to me all the time during live during live television hits during my book tour. My husband is just pissing, just pissing. Yes. And then he'd flush it. And I'd be like, they'd be counting me down. Five, four, three, two, flush. And then like the flushing logo would like pop up on the screen. Miraculously, no one heard it. In my defense, it, there is no defense. In my defense, in no my defense. own mind, I was alone. I didn't think anyone else was in the oh, room. Oh, how does that? How does that sound? In my mind, <laughs> in my mind, I was alone. You know my wife, my in dear, my mind, sweet, beautiful I... wife, who I love so much. I can't imagine a life without that. I had two more kids with because I love so much. She's sitting two feet away from me, but in my mind, I'm alone. In my mind, I was alone. <laughs> this is what. This is what. It revealed about a relationship is you could there was no right amount of time with the other because I wouldn't I'd want to get away I'd want to be with her a lot and I was but then also other times I'd want to not see her and I couldn't like go to the kitchen and get a glass of water without running into her there and he having a non work to hear me leave the kitchen before he'd go up to get a glass of water and I only found this out recently. Because I, I would be in a zone, I'd be in a writing zone, so I would just kind of, I'd wait at the corner until she shuffled out. <laughs> and I would go in, and then I would get what I needed, and then I would God shoot downstairs. Because God you had to talk to your wife. Because I was in the zone, I needed to be in the zone. Because you were alone. You were alone. I was alone in my mind. You were alone in your mind. Alone together. Alone together. That's our next book. Let's write that together. Yeah, I think if you can survive COVID, you're in a strong place. I think our marriage is better for every... We procreated during COVID. I mean, that's a good sign, right? Our our marriage is better. Every year gets better. Like, the, like our whole... The, every year has been a trust exercise that has paid off, and it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. 
honestly. Like the intimacy gets deeper, the the fights get stupider. The fight gets stupider, <laughs> but also more infrequent. And like the things that I like, I feel like I owe you for everything. And I feel like you owe me for everything. And it's like in that and as a result, we're braided into this really strong. What the rope, listener can't you know? see is me laughing hysterically. No, like <laughs> I silently. you've done I, I would I would be still in that apartment in Park Slope probably, you know? I'd be I'd be scaring away the Another... I probably would have quit the Trump campaign and gone back to London. I don't know what I, I just know that I, I don't know where I would be right now if not for meeting I'd her. I'd be married but I, to a I'd French be, guy. My mom would be so disappointed. I would be in a lonelier, less less joyous and No, I agree. I'm being sarcastic, but I, be, I, I would not be in the place I am. We are so... we are a really good team and we love each other and we have stupid fights, which both of us end up apologizing for and in teary ways. I love you so much. I'm sorry. As long as she, about as long as she, thing. as long as she apologizes, <laughs> I will apologize about anything because I believe in in peace with honor. Peace with honor is the key to a healthy relationship. <laughs> Always apologize, even if you think she's wrong. Apologize, guys. I feel like you just rewrote your vows. You don't have to wait till year ten. This is great. You just just rewrote them mm. right here, mm. right on right on the show. I love it. This episode was hosted and reported by Joe Piazza, with a very special thanks to Katie and Tony. Committed is produced by Ramsey Yunt. The executive producers are Joe Piazza and Tyler Klang. Theme song by Tristan McNeil. For comments, suggestions, or to be part of the show, give us a call at 404-996-1173. That's 404-996-1173. Or send us an email at joe at committedpodcast.com. That's J-O at committedpodcast.com. You can pick up a copy of Katie Turr's new memoir, Rough Draft, wherever books are sold. Committed is a production of iHeartRadio and produced in our studios located in Atlanta, Georgia. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book.